0: I was asked by two young women who were both way into the third trimester, you know, in a short time, I will be giving birth. Should I then breastfeed or should I not? We have in society benefited from these compounds for decades, and now we are letting
1: the next generation pay the price. From the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, this is Silent Chemicals Loud Science, a show that takes the better living out of chemistry. I'm Brandon Fuller, and along with your host, Judith Swift, we'll talk to experts from around the globe about what's eating you, chemically speaking, even if you don't know it.
0: I'm Philippe Garchand. I'm a physician, and I am currently an environmental epidemiologist working as a professor of environmental medicine at the University of Southern Denmark.
1: Dr. Grosjean is the co-director of the STEEP Superfund Research Center, along with Dr. Reiner Lohmann.
0: I'm also an adjunct professor of environmental health at Harvard School of Public Health, and I'm an adjunct professor also here at the University of Rhode Island.
1: As part of STEEP, Dr. Grosjean is the principal investigator of a project that is exploring the adverse effects of PFAS on the immune system in children. The clinical piece of that project is carried out in the Faroe Islands, where Dr. Grandjean has long been a pioneer of research assessing the impact of environmental pollution on human health.
2: You have a significant history of working in the Faroe Islands to determine the presence of toxic chemicals in the food web. Could you tell us a bit about the genesis of that work in the Faroes and elsewhere?
0: Uh, I first visited the Pharaohs as a young birdwatcher, and learned that they were eating seabirds and they were eating marine food, including the traditional food, uh, pilot whale meat and blubber. So when I later graduated from medical school, I thought I would uh, try to understand if the environmental pollution was impacting on human health at the Faroe Islands because they were getting their food from the top of the marine food web. That led me to um, collaborate with uh, a medical colleague, Paul Weyer, and we then, in 1986, established the first birth cohort in in the pharaohs which meant that we for every single birth that happened we would get blood from the umbilical cord at the time the child was born and we would get some questionnaire information from the mother and later on we would follow up the child and and see if uh, the presence of pollutants in the child's cord blood was affecting the child's development.
2: It's very clear that the people of the Pharaohs are highly supportive of the work that you're doing, which is a very positive sign. How did you persuade them?
0: It's not a matter of uh, persuasion, it's a matter of uh, uh, relating, and uh, all of these studies have been done uh, in complete transparency. My colleague Paul Valle, who received an award here at University of Rhode Island, uh, he's well known in the society and and people feel comfortable asking him questions and he's open and he shares his information with them.
2: A lot of your work has turned now to PFAS, uh, which is a large body of, of different combinations of chemicals. Um, I wonder if you could explain what it is about PFAS that you found so compelling.
0: Well, well, first of all, uh, it's well known from uh, research carried out here at University of Rhode Island that, that these chemicals are uh, very stable. They, they are persistent. They, they don't easily break down, which means that uh, the, the PFASs uh, were used, let's say, 20 years ago uh, for firefighting purposes, uh, or for raincoats, or uh, treatment of um, uh, furniture textiles, whatever. Those PFASs are still around, and they may not be in the same place any longer. They may have seeped through the soil into the groundwater. They may have run through uh, streams out into the oceans. Uh, They may have come up through the chimney stack because the municipal um, incinerator is not uh, using a temperature that's high enough to destroy these chemicals, and therefore they just go up through the chimney. And then some of that will... Uh, rain down on the ocean and so in the end we see that the, these chemicals uh, are being spread, they are disseminated uh, into the environment and uh, that way they are essentially reaching all of us. They end up in various forms on our dinner plate.
2: So essentially they are found in air, soil and water. Uh, that pretty much wraps up everything, doesn't it?
0: It it does. But I would insist that um, currently uh, the main problem is PFAS is in in drinking water because the groundwater has been and and uh, surface waters have been so uh, substantially contaminated from point sources and from the use, um, for example, at airports or military bases they have been used for foam forming, um, uh, fire extinguishing materials. And these products have actually just seeped through the soil and reached the groundwater. It is a problem that I know is uh, a big problem in Australia, and now problems are coming up in various countries, you know, like Italy, uh, Germany, Belgium, Sweden, my own country, Denmark. Uh, So it, it is essentially international. We could have prevented that from happening, but it didn't happen.
2: So as you referenced all of the different sources, I think one of the things that we can simply say is that things that are nonstick or are water-resistant, waterproof, etc., these are all consumer goods that we all use, and um, they're very important to us. Uh, So it's difficult to figure out how to remove these. And as you pointed out, I think lots of people have heard about these chemicals as forever chemicals because of their persistence. What are the impacts on people... And is there any particular population and age that's more impacted by their ubiquitous presence in consumer goods and other forms of exposure?
0: It, it, it's obvious that, um, you know, for example, if your wall-to-wall uh, carpet is treated, then as, as it's being worn uh, through everyday use, there is some dust is created. Uh, Likewise, um, uh, the furniture, upholstery, uh, we use textiles um, and, um, you know, we we don't want the textile to be uh, stained just because we we spill a little bit of coffee. Well, that's why the uh, materials are often treated with these compounds. That means that in house dust we have these compounds. And we will inhale those uh, dust particles, of course, but there's more to it and and that is that you know when that rock is really worn down, we want to throw it out. but there is no place in America or in the world that we can call away we if we want to throw this away it that place doesn't exist, and uh, in principle, if we wanted to remove these um, Uh, compounds uh, completely, we will have to generate temperatures that are above 1,000 degrees centigrade, which uh, takes a very special uh, kind of equipment. It's, It's not something that you can count on your municipality to do when, when they um, uh, do waste incineration. So, so these are complicated matters where we all essentially contribute to the exposure, to our own exposure because we inhale the dust, uh, but also the environmental exposure. And that's simply because we are not told when we buy that rug or that uh, sofa or that raincoat, we are not told that they are treated with highly toxic
2: chemicals. So could you talk a bit about what the range of impacts are and again that issue of age? Uh, Who does it impact the most and when and where should we be placing our concern?
0: Uh, it, it's clear that uh, these compounds can attack a, a lot of organ functions, and they are related to uh, several uh, diseases and dysfunctions. Um, and the early studies uh, focused on industrial workers uh, who had been exposed to uh, one or more of uh, the PFASs. And, and so uh, some focus was on uh, cancer, uh, like uh, uh, testicular kidney prostate cancer uh, and and yes uh, there is an increased risk of these cancers uh, but uh, in the background population those uh, cancers are not all that common and the risk is small and other um, adverse effects are more important uh, for example uh, it's now pretty pretty well documented that uh, at elevated exposures to these compounds, you simply develop higher cholesterol concentrations and, and lipids uh, in your blood. And that's, of course, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, we, we don't have so good evidence yet uh, how that affects our cardiovascular f- uh, functions, except that there is now growing evidence that it's related to uh, hypertension. Uh, which of course is an important public uh, health problem. I would say in the most recent years, um, more and more focus has been on uh, reproductive health in that it it seems that these compounds can affect fertility so that uh, couples have uh, greater difficulty in in, uh, reaching a, a pregnancy. Uh, There is an association with lower birth weight, Uh, there's an association with um, uh, the the child developing uh, greater BMI, meaning becoming um, uh, fatter. And on the contrary, to have a skeleton that contains less calcium, which is... Uh, counterintuitive, You would think that a heavier child would have a heavier skeleton, but if it's associated with the uh, PFAS, it's actually the other way around. Uh, the, um, the child gets heavier but has a, a uh, less mineralized uh, skeleton. We, we, we're just uh, finding out these details now because the PFAS apparently affect hormonal functions, Uh, and uh, some enzymes and biochemical uh, functions in the body. And uh, I would be surprised if we're not finding even more adverse effects uh, as time goes by and we're studying this uh, in depth.
2: I understand that there is some impact on the development of the immune system.
0: This is uh, what uh, some people consider a critical effect uh, that is an effect uh, that uh, does happen uh, even even at what one might call background exposures. That, that is at, at levels uh, that you and I represent be, because we all have these PFAS circulating in our blood. Um, it, there was an animal study that was published in, in 2006, I believe, that showed that uh, mice uh, was highly vulnerable in regard to uh, their immune system response to the injection of a foreign protein. And and, um, this was simply (laughs) a a way that uh, experimental toxicologists uh, study the immune system in mice. And what was... found out at the time was that it happened at blood concentrations of PFAS in the mice at levels that were not very much higher than uh, what humans have. And so having, having seen that, we wondered uh, whether this was something to worry about. At the time, we were most concerned uh, about dioxins and, and similar compounds, the PCBs, and, and we were preparing to study uh, children's uh, response to routine vaccinations. And um, having read that animal study, uh, we wondered if the PFAS could have a similar effect. So we, we carried out this study and I must say when we looked at the findings uh, it was like we were totally shocked. Uh, I called uh, my good colleague uh, Carsten Heilman who is a professor in, in pediatric immunology uh, at the National Hospital in Copenhagen. I, I called him and I said this is what we are finding and he said are you sure these kids are not exposed to some cancer medicine or something? This is totally unreal. This cannot be happening. And I said, this, this is what we are finding. For each doubling of a child's PFAS concentration in the blood, the child is losing 50% of the antibody concentration. And he said he'd never heard about something like that. It it, uh, could have been dioxin poisoning or something. And I said, no, these are PFASs at levels that are similar to the concentrations that both you and I have in our bodies. And these children are not um, responding appropriately to routine vaccinations. And we can also see that there is an increased risk that these kids after four vaccinations, uh, in this case against diphtheria and, and uh, tetanus, are not appropriately protected, uh, which means that the, the purpose of vaccinating them repeatedly is not fulfilled, uh, simply because these uh, kids have been exposed to the uh, PFASIS. So this study was published in early um, 2012, and and since then many other studies have been carried out. The effects are not as strong in uh, adults apparently, but but, um, most of those studies have been carried out cross-sectionally, meaning that it's PFAS concentrations measured at a particular point in time, compared to whatever the antibody concentration is. And and clearly, uh, one w- would have liked to look at past exposures, perhaps childhood exposures, uh, when looking at adults. And But those studies have not been done.
2: It seems quite clear then that the major emphasis needs to be placed on the next generation, as it were.
0: Uh, that, that is true, and and um, the point is that the immune system, part of the immune system will develop um, before birth, but what we call the adaptive immune system that, responds, that has to respond to foreign proteins in the outside world uh, after the child is born, that adaptive immune system has to develop right after birth, and particularly during the first year of life or so. But that is also the important age where uh, the child is breastfed. And WHO and CDC and and other authorities will recommend that uh, young mothers breastfeed uh, the babies for as long as possible, uh, preferably um, uh, exclusively during the first six months. And what we have seen is that the PFASs, and, and it's like, it, it's completely shocking to me, the PFASs have the property that they are excreted in high concentrations in human milk, which means that it, you can say it's an advantage to the mother because um, if she breastfeeds for uh, like six months or so, Uh, she can rid herself of uh, perhaps half of the uh, PFAS she has in her body. But this is transferred to the baby who may end up with a blood concentration of these compounds, which is 10 times higher than what the mother had, which means that we are exposing the next generation at peak concentrations at the most vulnerable age, where the immune system is supposed to develop and and learn how to protect us against infections, and where other body functions like uh, metabolic or uh, hormone functions are also supposed to mature so that uh, we can live a uh, healthy uh, and good life uh, uh, with that um, optimally functioning body uh, for the rest of our lives. Now that is programmed prenatally, but also early postnatally, and we are poisoning these uh, processes by pfas.
2: What would you tell a woman who is currently pregnant, or who is uh, contemplating becoming pregnant? Uh, in terms of how, how to best approach these very complex questions. I mean, this is a, an, an ethical morass in many ways.
0: I tell you, it, the, this is uh, uh, the worst nightmare uh, that I know of. Uh, I, I was recently in a situation where... Uh, I was asked by two young women who were both uh, way into pregnancy, in, into the uh, third trimester, and my lab did their blood tests, and, and they had severely elevated uh, PFAS concentrations in the blood uh, f- from a, a recently discovered source. And, and both women were now contemplating what should they do and and, uh, both of them had uh, carefully planned this pregnancy to happen at the the most uh, convenient time for the family. And um, here I am, they're asking me, um, what what can I do? Because you're telling me I'm full of uh, poison, and uh, I'm now sharing that with my uh, child, And um, in you know in a short time I will be giving birth. Should I then breastfeed or should I not? And so. You know, as a physician, I I would very much appreciate uh, the chance of writing a prescription and uh, trying to get this over with, um, or refer uh, the patient to a specialist or a hospital uh, who can um, handle the problem. We don't have a solution here, and and so my. preference, uh, if I may say so, the least of, <laughs> of the possible evils. My, my preference is to, to share the information I have to the extent that the woman uh, does want it, and then uh, say that um, breast milk is an ideal nutrition for the newborn. And that we, we should not deprive the newborn of the chance to benefit from breast milk. On the other hand, the, the, most of that benefit comes within the first three months. And um, it, it's therefore important to breastfeed for a couple of months. But the extended breastfeeding, also because a child gets hungrier, uh, the extended breastfeeding uh, may not be as beneficial and so my my uh, advice would be to uh, breastfeed but but for a shorter time than what is generally recommended. I feel very bad about this be, because it's not in my education uh, and and in my uh, way of dealing with uh, other people it i I feel bad telling a woman not to breastfeed when I know that breast milk is uh, it, it contains antibodies and it contains a lot of nutritious uh, uh, substances. I've, I feel very bad about this. And, and in effect, this is perhaps the uh, irony of the situation that we have in society benefited for these compound, from these compounds for decades and now we are letting the next
2: generation pay the price. I know one of the things that uh, I, I see now with college students is a great deal of anxiety. They're looking at issues like PFAS. They're looking at issues like climate change. And, of course, we have um, a pandemic, and it goes on and on. Uh, the, the legacy that we're leaving for them is really horrifying in many ways, and it's no wonder that they feel anxious. Uh, in addition to that, though, I... I I'd like to ask you, and I know this you may feel this is a bit out of your realm, but it's an, impor- it's an important question, and I'm sure you've given it a great deal of thought. What should be done to prevent this kind of situation? You mentioned at the earlier point about the cohorts that you started with and that you were dealing with dioxins and DDT and mercury and so forth. What should be done to prevent chemical companies from unleashing these toxins on society as a whole it's ubiquitous throughout the planet as we know um, what should be done to prevent this what kind of process in manufacturing can prevent this
0: is there are many elements and in, in, in this uh, uh, and I would say uh, the situation we have with the PFAS is, uh, it can be likened to a perfect storm because uh, there are, uh, the one element is that uh, uh, some chemical companies who, who were producing these compounds already from the 1950s, 60s, uh, they did studies. And in 1978, uh, a monkey study was done that clearly showed that uh, the immune system uh, could suffer and, uh, because uh, lesions were found in lymph nodes, uh, in the spleen, in the blood, etc. Uh, but this was not published. And there was no follow-up, apparently. Uh, at least uh, nothing has uh, come to the surface. Um, It was only in the 1990s that a a physician who was working on his PhD uh, found some um, deviations in the white blood cells of the workers of the company. It was also in the early 90s that um, a study was done that showed that the PFASs would go into... The milk, and this was a study done in goats, uh, as you know, the experimental model. So this was known, but again, nobody was told. And so we made the discoveries at a substantial delay. And it's a delay that is now hurting us because uh, first of all, (laughs) we have to understand where to look for these problems. We were not told, we had to find out ourselves. Then we had to carry out the studies. The studies uh, would have to be appreciated by the uh, governmental authorities and uh, possibly uh, uh, policy decisions would have to be made. All of this takes time and in the meantime these compounds are building up in the environment and more and more children are exposed to these compounds uh, with uh, implications for their uh, future health. So this is why I consider this a a perfect storm and and I think that it, it would of course be important to Uh, generate more research on this, uh, to do more monitoring, uh, to do more uh, pollution control. But we are also lacking uh, the actions from the authority, uh, from the governmental authorities, and the uh, policy decisions have, have also been delayed. So no matter how much information we generate, we need to make sure that action is taken And that this is not something that's just limited to some fancy scientific journals.
1: That's Dr. Philippe Grandjean, co-director of the Steep Superfund Research Center and professor and chair of environmental medicine at the University of Southern Denmark. He also teaches at Harvard School of Public Health and at the University of Rhode Island. You can learn more about STEEP and Dr. Grandjean's work at uri.edu STEEP, that's uri.edu S-T-E-E-P, and you can follow them on Twitter at STEEP Superfund. The STEEP Superfund Research Program is a partnership of the University of Rhode Island, Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the Department of Environmental Health, and Silent Spring Institute. Research reported in this podcast was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health under award number P42ES027706. The content is solely the responsibility of the speakers and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health. Silent Chemicals Loud Science is a production of the Coastal Institute at the University of Rhode Island, hosted by Judith Swift and edited by me, Brandon Fuller. If you haven't already make sure you don't miss our next episode by subscribing to silent chemicals loud science wherever you get your podcasts you can find us online at uri.edu slash institute on twitter at uri underscore coastal inst that's i-n-s-t or on instagram at uri underscore coastal institute thanks so much for listening we'll see you next time